Today at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies we have a talk by Michael Rogers titled Tales from Publishing. The talk is introduced by lecturer Sheila Lambie. The person I'm introducing to you today is, as far as I'm concerned, and I have been a long time in publishing and known a lot of commissioning editors, the best commissioning editor I've ever worked with. Um, he modestly calls this talk Tales from Publishing. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, before I start, just to give you some sort of um, orientation, some sort of context, um, very brief words about um, where I've been and things. Uh, I came into publishing in the end of, beginning of 1969, and I joined the OUP as its science field editor. So I used to go out and try and find authors uh, in universities and things like that. I did that for five years. Then I came inside and I had my own list um, in science for another five years. I left after 10 years and I joined an American publishing company called W.H. Freeman, who were owned by Scientific American. Um, I left them after about uh, three years and went to Longman in uh, Harlow. Um, and after about eight years, I then joined um, Spectrum. So a German, you won't have heard of Spectrum, it was a German publishing house and it was the science book arm of the mighty Holtzbrink. Holtzbrink is a huge German media group and they own Scientific American and therefore W.H. Freeman and they own Macmillan and uh, so on. So uh, I joined Spectrum but I was actually based with the W.H. Freeman office, my old office from previously. Um, uh, working for Spectrum but out of the Freeman office and then finally I ended my days by going back to the OUP and um, I finished there um, uh, at the end of 2003 so it was about sort of 35 years in round numbers in publishing and in all that time there were three sorts of books that I really enjoyed working with that I thought were really me um, one was popular science, or trade science, as we say in the trade. Um, secondly, um, trade reference, that is, reference book, books for a general audience. And uh, one taste of that, I commissioned in the 1970s the Oxford Companion to the Mind, uh, Richard Gregory, that's that sort of a uh, trade reference book. And then finally... Uh, I also had an interest in um, textbooks, science textbooks, all science. Um, so popular science, college textbooks, and uh, trade ref. Um, so that's me. Um, and one other thing I want to say before I start is uh, what I want to talk about, they're all real books. And uh, so I'm not going to sort of talk about theory and uh, things like that. These are real-life books, and it happened in real life. And uh, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I think that's important. Reality, real life. Okay, well, the first one um, we'll start with is um, this book, <laughs> The Selfish Gene, um, Richard Dawkins. Um, this became a famous book. It was published in 1976, and the title, The Selfish Gene, is now part of the lexicon of the language uh, people use it in sort of, as it were, everyday um, conversation. And it resulted in the author, Richard Dawkins, um, uh, being catapulted from being an unknown academic to somebody famous. It's still in print after nearly 35 years. So, an interesting book. Um, and what I want to tell you about it all happened in an amazingly short time span. This all happened in 1976. Um, from uh, the end of um, February of 76 
when a letter landed on my desk, and so the book was published uh, at the end of October in that same year. So a most amazing experience uh, compressed uh, into that time span. Um, a letter came uh, from one of the fellows at New College where Dawkins was, and he said, uh, Dear Michael, uh, at lunch today, uh, one of our people called Dawkins was talking about a book he's writing. Um, I have no idea if it's any good. It's called The Selfish Gene. Um, I got in touch with uh, Dawkins, and um, he left for me to read um, eight chapters. There were 11 proposed chapters, and eight of them he left at the Porter's Lodge for me to collect on my way home, um, and, um, which I read at home. And I hadn't even reached the bottom of the first page when I knew um, this was something special. Um, if any of you have actually read The Selfish Gene, uh, you will know why it works uh, so well. There's the writing, wonderful writing with its wonderful sentence rhythms. There are the big intellectually challenging ideas but so beautifully explained exciting ideas and thirdly throughout there are the animal behavior stories which Dawkins could just uh, produce to illustrate any sort of point um, and that brings it all to life um, and so this really uh, I sometimes think of it as the rather than a sort of an interesting read, uh, fascinating read and so on, it was as if the writing had actually grabbed me by the lapels. And you take notice, because it's so wonderful. And that ignites an enthusiasm, which is important. Um, if you're going to be a successful commissioning editor, I think you need to enthuse people with your enthusiasm and uh, all that. And that's what happened... Um, in this case. Um, I arranged to have lunch with Dawkins, uh, met him uh, for the first time, and uh, one of the things, um, I said, well, um, this is what I think, uh, already having read those um, uh, chapters, there are about 65,000 words. I think that should go into a book of about 200 pages, it should be a hardback, and at the time, uh, this will seem odd now, all these years later, at the time, we'll have a price of £2.95. That was a hardback price, and that would encourage the maximum number of people to actually buy their own copy. Uh, hardbacks of that time might have been sort of £3.50, that sort of uh, range. £2.95 at the low end to encourage the um, maximum sale. Um, I contacted um, later that week uh, the marketing manager, trade marketing manager, a chap called John Lord, and told him I'd been bowled over by this uh, book. I wanted him to join in uh, the campaign. Would he come to Oxford, meet the author, and uh, things like that? And that's what happened. And uh, during that uh, meeting of the three of us, Richard agreed to let the uh, OUP um, publish his book. Um, so it had been won um, for um, the press. Um, so that was that, um, signing it. One thing uh, I want you to read yourself um, on the next slide, I think, is uh, my writing to um, the branch managers of OUP around the world, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and uh, so on. And I wrote them a letter. It was my pitch to try and persuade them, rather than waiting for the routine things coming in the post and so on. I want them to sit up and recognize this was something very special. So that was my sales pitch. If you'd like to read that. One of um, the people involved in this story was uh, Desmond Morris. If you've heard of Desmond Morris, 
he wrote a very well, a book that became very, very famous um, called The Naked Ape, which sold millions. And uh, Richard uh, took advice. He lives in Oxford um, from Desmond Morris. And one thing that Desmond Morris uh, had said about choosing your publisher, and Desmond had told Richard, go with the publisher who is really sold on it, who will work so hard on the book that um, it'll make people talk about the book and um, get known in that sort of way. Um, well, actually, this letter was nothing to do with that. This was a spontaneous reaction because I was almost swept off my feet. I was so enthusiastic about the book. And uh, so this, the fact that anybody could enjoy reading this book, uh, that was a sort of a spontaneous reaction. Um, one amazing uh, result was that the um, Australian uh, branch manager uh, came back and um, said, we'd like a quote on 3,000 copies. A staggering number. I mean, these people would take sort of, you know, 20 or 30 copies. Here, they were asking for 3,000 copies. And he said, please tell us if we're being mad. Uh, but that was a nice response um, uh, to have, uh, that it was actually um, working. Um, with the next slide, you'll see that um, there was much agonizing about the title. Um, some people thought that you can't call it the selfish gene because that indicates or that suggests one rogue gene amongst lots of normal ones. Um, so it needs to be plural. Um, how about the selfish genes? Uh, plural. And some people said, well, you know, uh, they're in us and so on. What about our selfish genes? And then Desmond Morris himself uh, suggested, how about calling it the gene machine? Um, and some of my colleagues were greatly taken with the gene machine and said, well, you know, that's a more sellable title than um, the selfish gene. Um, I don't know what you think, um, but for me, uh, right at the outset, I loved the selfish gene. Um, for me, it had a sort of a brooding presence. And in my imagination, sometimes, I could see it appearing on a screen um, whilst um, Mozart's opera, Don Giovanni, begins its overture with this doom-laden uh, chord, very frightening. And in my imagination, I could hear that and uh, this on a screen. Um, and I felt that... The gene machine, yes, it's very clever and it's uh, amusing and uh, so on, but um, it's neutral. The book is about explaining behavior, assuming that genes, as if they're selfish, I mean, they're molecules, but as if they behave as if they're selfish. And the selfish gene communicates that. The gene machine doesn't. It's neutral. So... Um, Fortunately, uh, I think, it won the day, and that's what it ended up um, being called. Um, on the next slide, um, there was great pressure from the sales force to um, have illustrations. Let's have some pictures in it. It'll make it more sellable. Um, well... Yes, salespeople tend to say that sort of thing. Let's have some pictures. Um, but actually, I was extremely resistant to that. Um, some sorts of popular science, um, people want to know about a new field and uh, all that, learn about something that they think is intellectually exciting. And there is an agreement with the author and the reader that... There's a didactic purpose. You want to learn something. And in those cases, and there's many wonderful books like that, where illustrations actually help. But the selfish gene wasn't like that. Yes, you might learn things, but that wasn't the purpose. You were reading it because it was an exciting read. 
um, and I wanted it to be appreciated as if it were a novel, a thriller, appealing to the imagination, and I thought that pictures would get in the way. So that was something to be resisted, and we ended up with no illustrations, and you read it like a novel. It gave you that sort of excitement. Okay, um, the BBC um, heard about this um, and uh, came to um, have lunch with, with Richard and uh, with me with a view to making um, a, a Horizon program. And um, this was to go out um, shortly after the book was published in November 1976. Um, and... John Lord, the marketing manager I told you about, and the sales manager, a chap called Martin Cowell, and I were invited to go to the BBC to have an advanced uh, screening of this, um, of this Horizon film. And for us, um, it was something very, very important. Um, how was it going to affect the sale of the book this program going out sort of 10 days after the uh, publication. I think, uh, I can't be absolutely certain, but I think our initial print run was down at 5,000 copies. America were going to print copies for their own uh, market. So this was for the sort of UK, Europe and so on, 5,000 copies. Dreadful if um, the program goes out and there are queues at the bookshops to buy it uh, and it's sold out and you have to wait for a reprint. But if you get it wrong and you say, oh, let's reprint, um, and then it doesn't have that sort of effect, and you're left with copies in the warehouse, um, that's a nuisance and uh, all that. So uh, John and Martin and I had to do, watch the film and then decide, shall we reprint before publication, before we know? Um, and we left the uh, broadcasting house, got in Martin's car, drove around Shepherd's Bush, agonising, drive around Shepherd's Bush again. And we drove around a third time. <coughs> and we decided, yes, we should reprint. And a reprint was ordered that same day for 4,000 copies before the book was published. It turned out to be the right decision. <laughs> I'm now going to move to another Dawkins book, uh, and by this time, um, I've moved to uh, Longman in uh, Harlow, um, the blind watchmaker. Um, the trouble with um, Longman is it never published a high-profile trade book, certainly not on the science side. Uh, before um, and one of my first jobs was persuading the sales and marketing people there yes we can actually do this um, or we haven't done this before but we can do it and it'll be fun and getting them on side then getting my bosses on side because to win this book was going to need a substantial royalty advance and so the money people have to be persuaded it's going to be worth it. And so that was involved. Um, Richard's um, literary agent, Carolyn Dorney, uh, when I contacted her, um, said, but Longman don't have any track record. Um, we had lunch together, and she said, after, all right, Longman can join the auction when this book is auctioned. Um, later um, in the summer um, and um, so we put together a marketing plan uh, persuading um, um, our chiefs on um, the royalty advance and Penguin were brought in Penguin was a sister company uh, we were both owned by Pearson and Carolyn wanted both a hardback and a paperback deal um, in the same uh, uh, offer. And so I contacted Penguin. Um, the editor there, uh, Don McFarlane, was very keen, yes, and we'll come up with uh, some money as well. Um, 
Then there was the auction itself, which was um, in um, September 1984. Um, bit of a nerve-jangling business. Uh, Carolyn rang me and uh, said, yes, can you improve terms on this, that and the other? And of course, no surprise, you really have to come up with more money uh, if you want to win this book. And so having then to phone my boss, who was then in Edinburgh, uh, who was nervous about um, more money, uh, is it really worth it, persuade me. Then phoning Penguin, Penguin finally came back, yes, we can come up with more money, but this is our absolute limit. So going back to Carolyn uh, with the new offer, and after four hours, uh, the news came through, we'd won it and we'd, uh, we'd got the book. So that was great. Um, on the next slide, um, back to the selfish gene uh, days when, again, the sales force wants illustrations. And again, for the same reason, I don't want to do this um, because, uh, again, it should appeal to the imagination, it should be like reading a novel. Uh, I don't want it to look like a textbook. Um, but such was the pressure, there was a compromise, and an artist called Liz Pyle was asked to produce some um, pictures, not as sort of diagrams, but one to face the opening of each chapter to capture the spirit of that chapter. Um, and when I saw these, uh, initially the first of them, I was won over. Um, and if we, this is actually the Francis piece at the beginning of the book, and I thought they were so powerfully atmospheric uh, and wholly in keeping with the book, um, and I really liked them, and they improved the book. Um, the next one is actually one of the, uh, one of the chapters. Um, the chapter title, and to show you how much this really harmonizes with the chapter. Uh, this chapter uh, in The Blind Watchmaker is called Explosions and Spirals. You see how she's captured that sort of spirals, these birds. Um, so capturing the spirit of each chapter. Now, um, we were agonizing at this time about the jacket. Um, and the idea was that Liz Pyle, who'd done these gorgeous uh, drawings, black and white drawings, if she would come up with um, a picture suitable for the jacket. And just when that was getting underway, Richard Dawkins rang me and said, Desmond Morris is so intrigued by my title, The Blind Watchmaker, he's painted a picture inspired by the title called The Blind Watchmaker. Desmond Morris was an amateur surrealist artist. And uh, the selfish gene, which we've dealt with, that's a Desmond Morris painting, uh, The Expectant Valley. And so he's done The Blind Watchmaker. Would I like to go over to Oxford and uh, see it with a view to choosing it for um, um, the jacket? Um, and... Um, that is the Desmond Morris painting called The Blind Watchmaker. Well, um, design were outraged. <laughs> Here I was encroaching on their territory. Um, and the head of design stormed in. How dare I? And uh, so on. Uh, and so I had to calm him down. And uh, I also wrote a, a nice letter to Liz Pyle um, to explain why. The point was that the story of having Desmond Morris, no less, this very famous author, uh, who'd been inspired by the title to paint a picture called The Blind Watchmaker, was a wonderful tale for the sales force to tell to booksellers when they were going around selling uh, the book. And that was more powerful, uh, having this story. And that would get the book into the news for a different sort of uh, reason. And so 
design's outrage was uh, diffused. It was for the good of the book, and there was a good reason for it. Um, next, um, there's another agonizing moment for me, that at that time, 1984, Longman's um, university division split into two. There was science and there was uh, the arts, humanities. It had been decided that on the science side, um, there was to be a new imprint, a new brand called Longman Scientific and Technical. And because the Dawkins book was scheduled to be published about the same time, um, the plan proposed was that this should spearhead the launch of the new brand. Now, for me, this was um, agonizing because you see here, Longman Scientific and Technical, for me, trying to reach a general audience, this was a boring image. I didn't want the blind watchmaker to be associated with science and technical and hard things and things like that. But the point was, if we did this, then there would be a much greater spend on marketing for the blind watchmaker. And so it was time for pragmatism. And so I said, fine, let's do it. Um, and the book got much more uh, exposure as a result of having a spend from the launch of a new imprint, boring though it was in the context of the book. Um, um, that's what we did. Well, to give you an idea of um, how successful it was, um, Longman's subscription, do we know what subscription means? That's the pre-publication orders taken by the sales force for the book before publication. And Longman's subscription was, for the hardback, was 17,000 copies. Now, to give you some context for that, which is instructive, the North American rights had been acquired by Norton, W.W. Norton in New York. And their total sale of their hardback before they launched their paperback was 18,000. Longman's pre-publication subscription was just 1,000 below that. And we had built into the contract with Penguin that we would have the hardback on sale for 18 months. Um, when the book launched, it was doing so well, Penguin begged us, please, can we publish it earlier? And we said, no, because it's still selling. And we ended up selling, in 18 months, 25,000 copies of the hardback, which was astonishing. So there we are, Longman, no track record of that sort of book, and they end up selling 25,000 hardbacks. That was great. Um, so, I'm now going to switch from those two Dawkins uh, trade books um, to um, a textbook, which is uh, here. Um, I've been interested, shortly after joining OUP, in getting some chemistry textbooks published by OUP. And I started with um, a series called the Oxford Chemistry Series. And these were short, 100-page books, a pound each, dealing with a single um, topic. And this was launched in 1972 with four titles. And uh, actually, it's, um, the final title was published sort of 18 years later, title number 35. So in that sense, um, we might decide it was a success. And it certainly raised the OUP's profile in chemistry textbook publishing. But series. Beginners in publishing love series. Why? Anybody think of any reasons why series are so attractive? I'm sure you can, because you're all thinking of series, aren't you, for mm -hmm. NPD? And you've done the editorial project. Yes, and you've done the editorial project. Polly? It looks like a nice money spinner. People want to get them all and 
got one and you've enjoyed it, if you've had a nice clear format to them and they can all be and shelved together yeah. and displayed together and they look like a good mass yeah yeah that's a good point yeah, yeah. anything else okay one reason why beginners like series is that you have from an early stage a feeling of excitement of activity uh, and you're signing up new titles and things are happening quickly and this gives you a sense of progress and things are happening. Um, that's why uh, they are invigorating. But one of the uh, snags about series is that you've got an academic series editor, or in this case there were three series editors, academics, and you're really giving up quite a big measure of control over how a series should be developing and the professor will say, let's have a book on this, that, and the other. Yes, and let's have a title on this. And so you're ceding control to outsiders, academics. Um, that's, um, that's a negative point. Um, but for me, at the time, uh, we would talk um, uh, in the science department about the small grosser problem. The small grocer problem is, well, the corner shop. And the small grocer makes money by selling small items, cheap, lots of different items. Um, so there's no real presence there. It's the adding up cumulatively of small items cheaply. Um, and that was the problem with the Oxford Chemistry Series. And the antidote. Uh, was having one big book. And that's why um, I actually um, asked Peter, um, if we have the next slide, um, if you would write um, um, this book. Um, I'd actually got the first indication um, that uh, there was a need for this book. Uh, there you are, 17th February 1970 at 4.20pm. Slight tongue-in-cheek, but give or take five or ten minutes, that was actually spot on. It was the first time visiting an academic, talking to people, what do you think about books and so on, strengths, weaknesses, what would you like and so on. And this was the first time that an academic had said, we're all fed up with what exists at the moment. In particular, a book by Moore, an American book. Um, it's time for something else. That was the start. I didn't know it was the start at the time. What I did was write a note um, and I remembered, and over the next year or so, people would say the same thing. So this awareness grew gradually, and so I became eventually, yes, there's a need for a new book. The competition is dated, past it, and so on. Uh, and that was why uh, I asked Peter uh, on that uh, date, before we had uh, dinner together. Uh, and the reason I asked him was that OUP in New York had uh, got their own PCHEM text, and they'd asked Peter to review, that is, read a typescript and criticize it. And by accident, I saw a copy of his report, and it was devastatingly negative. Um, it told me more about Peter than it told me about the American book being reviewed. And that's when I thought he was the person who ought to be writing um, this, um, this book. Um, so that was why. Um, now, um, I'll answer number two now. Um, the first thing I did when Peter eventually, he didn't say yes straight away, he kept me waiting, but eventually said, yes, you'll have a try. And um, the first thing I did was to buy in all the competition huge pile of big fat books, dump them on his desk and say, Peter, read these cover to cover and write down strengths and weaknesses and what you want to do. Um, and one result was that um, Peter put them in order. Of Moore was actually the best seller in the uh, UK. And that was the most demanding from the point of view of the uh, students. 
then Castellan, Barrow, Danson, Albersey. These are all American texts because at the time, the perceived wisdom was that no British author could write a mainstream science textbook that would make it succeed in the American college market. Everybody knew that. It was obvious. So they're all American. And Peter decided, not because it was the middle and sort of the middle ground, but what he wanted to do, his vision, he wanted to position his book slightly easier than Castellan, slightly harder than Barrow. So we had a clear idea of exactly what we wanted to do. On the next one, um, we agreed that um, Peter would write three specimen chapters in a table of contents, and we would um, send that out for review. And there's the date when uh, this happened, September 1974. So Peter and I were very, very excited. Wow, what great chapters, and so on. These were sent out to um, be reviewed, and the result was absolute failure, <laughs> utter, utter failure. Two reasons. One, all the reviewers said, the writing is far too informal and too chatty. Won't do. And the mathematical level is too low. It's inappropriate for the courses this book would be aimed at. The reviews were actually devastating. And Peter and I met over lunch to decide what to do. And um, at the end of a long, a two-bottle lunch, Peter decided to pick himself up. And although this had been very hurtful, he would start again and write uh, revised uh, chapters. And they were ready for review in March 75. And the result of that was... Inconclusive. Oh, I see. <laughs> Inconclusive. Um, one of the reviewers said, there's an awful lot wrong with it, but there's a bit of promise there. Press on. One reviewer said, rubbish, give up. And two sat on the fence. So, inconclusive. What to do? Um, and Peter decided that he would... No one's going to tell us on the basis of 10% of the whole thing. There are going to be about 30 chapters. No one's going to say, this is a winner on the basis of three chapters, four chapters. So Peter decided he would write 22. That's, there were to be three sections, and this was the two opening uh, sections, 22 chapters. Before any commitment, there's no signing up at this um, stage and um, that was what we would do, and these would be reviewed. And at that time, I approached an American co-publisher, another one, um, who was sceptical, don't really believe it, but when your ch 22 chapters are ready, yes, we'll send these out for review and see what um, we think. Um, and the result of that was sweet success. <laughs> All the viewers said, this is wonderful. This is what the world has been waiting for. Um, and so um, it was then, and only then, that we signed the book up. Uh, and we signed a contract with W.H. Freeman in America for the um, North American rights. Um, a big issue at this time was the extent, the length. And uh, when initially I talked to academics about what was needed for a new book, everyone said, 600 pages, not a page more. That's what's needed. As Atkins was writing his uh, chapters, we decided, well, we can go up a bit for that. 750 pages, and 750 pages, for me, took on this sort of sacredness. It had to be no more than 750 pages. The book was typeset and went into galley proof, and we whipped up our rulers to find out how long this book was going to be. And I was plunged into absolute gloom, a thousand pages. <laughs> so we'd broken through this length that I thought was so important. 
But if you're stuck with it, try and make a virtue of it. And this we're able to do. What we said uh, was, yes, it's a thousand pages, but the reason it's a thousand pages is that there are more works examples and more helpful pictures, things that will actually help students during the course. The actual text, the words themselves, it's shorter than the competition. So we made a, a virtue of that, uh, of that length. Um, okay, what's next? Um, well, here's a measure of its um, success. Uh, there was a, a new edition every four years, like clockwork, and every new edition sold better than the previous one. Remarkable. Truly remarkable. Um, worldwide sales, English language, about a quarter of a million. Three quarters of a million. Three quarters of a million. <laughs> what did I say? A quarter. Three quarters of a million. <laughs> and we sold um, translation rights in 17 languages. You can say it was a success. In fact, it remains, after more than 30 years, the world's top-selling PCHEM text in North America, the rest of the world. Remarkable for over three decades. Okay, was it worth it? Um, well, judge for yourself. It's a long time scale. Uh, took a long time. A lot of effort uh, going into it, its development. Um, I found it rather worrying at the time. I was editing uh, Peter's draft chapters, uh, not the chemistry, uh, but the way an argument is developed for students, the way that a story is told, is explained. Uh, that was going on, and I was aware that it might um, interfere with my proper day job, and so I was doing a lot of this in my own time because I was worried. Uh, but it all came good uh, in the end. But the other thing is, I was given the editorial freedom to pursue this, and that's important. Um, and I, I asked the question, could it happen today? I'm not sure that you get the same sort of measure of editorial freedom um, uh, today that you could in those days. That was in the, sort of the 1970s. Um, right, um, that's Atkins' Physical Chemistry. What I'm going to do now um, is, um, and that should come to the end of your part one of your handout, uh, and the next one you can look at later, because um, it has some of the answers to what we want you to think about, concerns titles and the importance of titles. And you might say, titles can be so obvious and so on, but uh, they're not. Uh, they might be obvious when they're the right title. Um, one of the authors um, I worked on uh, with, uh, with uh, when I was at Longman was Marion Dawkins. Marion, with an A by the way, not an O, a typo, um, was, Marion was the first wife of Richard. Um, and she was also um, um, a lecturer in zoology at uh, Oxford University um, with a special interest in, in animal behavior. And the technical name um, for uh, animal behavior is ethology. Um, and what Marion set out to do was identify certain areas that students traditionally found difficult and puzzling. And she was a very patient, very clear writer, and so she explained these problem areas uh, beautifully. And the working title we had um, was Stumbling blocks in ethology. Well, that tells it all. That's exactly what the book was. But a terrible, clunky, dreadful title. Um, and we were sure that when the time came, we'd think of something uh, better. But the time came, and we couldn't. We scratched our heads, and we couldn't. What Marion did was to put up a notice on her notice board um, in the zoology department um, and uh, offered a prize of a bottle of champagne for someone who could suggest 
um, a better title for this book. And guess who the winner was? No? The winner was Richard Dawkins. <laughs> and he won a bottle of champagne for that. And design came up with this beautiful image. This is the unravelling. Lovely. It all, it all came together. Nice, nice title. Um, invented by Richard. Okay. Um, now, something to think about. Um, a book I inherited uh, in the 70s at the OUP was a book of case studies from Oxfam. Um, and each of these case studies related how, typically, a subsistence farmer in the third world was working his guts out to feed his family, but because he just got a spade or whatever, all hours he could find was just enough to feed his family, nothing more. And Oxfam recognised that if actually we could focus help on that farmer, by a tractor or whatever, then that would increase his efficiency. And he could not only feed his family, he could actually make a profit, maybe employ people, and so on. And this was the way that Oxfam's monies would be spent focused on individual farmers in the third world. And these were really fascinating, not to mention heartwarming stories, uh, a collection of uh, them. Okay, we're now going to switch briefly to the question of um, jackets. Um, and um, this book here, um, which uh, is here, um, published at OUP. Note, by the way, uh, back to uh, titles. This book, the working title, was A History of Proteins. You might think it's a boring subject. It's actually a very interesting subject because it's full of humans, real people, uh, um, working in labs and so on, but real individuals. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good tale. Uh, but you can't call a book A History of Proteins. That's dead boring. You want a trade title. And uh, we came up with Nature's um, Robots. Um, I was quite new to the trade department in those days. And um, the marketing director um, took one look at this image, which actually is based on a diagram of how proteins fold. I mean, something quite technical. Uh, I said, oh, yes, lovely picture. Um, I hated it. Well, it hated it, but I didn't really like it. I didn't think it worked. Uh, and my suggestion was the book has some lovely period photographs of research groups from the sort of the 19th century uh, who worked in this um, area. Um, and I thought having um, one of those pictures saying human beings, people, would be more appealing to a general audience. But uh, I was shouted down. And we went ahead with uh, that as the hardback. But by the time the paperback came, um, I got more confidence in those days. And so my idea was actually used, which is the next one, which is uh, that. And I like the sort of the period charm of uh, that picture. So that was that one. Um, next one is um, a book. Um, I published called Oxygen, the Molecule that Made the World. And um, this was one of two images produced at a, presented at a, a jackets meeting. Jackets meetings, there must have been about 20 people. Um, one thing about jackets is that it is the one subject in publishing where everyone has a passionate opinion <laughs> and everyone thinks they know best. Um, and uh, the jackets meetings, I used to complain that they're far too democratic and I didn't like democracy. I thought uh, I prefer to have my own way. Um, but at the jackets meeting, um, um, this one received 20 votes uh, and mine was the single vote against it. And um, the reason is, 
So look, this is, will make people think of a chemical molecule, a gas. Dead boring. Uh, actually, the book is about life, living things. And there's one chapter in the book is called The Bolsover Dragonfly. And in 1970-something or other, miners working at Bolsover in Derbyshire discovered the fossil of a gigantic dragonfly. And its wingspan was half a metre. I mean, like a seagull. A huge dragonfly. And one of the themes in the book is that the ancient atmosphere had far more oxygen, uh, maybe 35%, than today, maybe about sort of 20%. Uh, and that was why dragonflies and other insects of this huge size could exist. And so I begged them, please, can we have my idea, which is of this fossilized dragonfly? Um, no, 20 votes to one, and it's thrown out. I appealed to my boss and her boss, and um, it was the week of the sales conference, and I was given two minutes to address the sales reps and tell them the tale, which I did, and they were all on my side. And so my idea got, which is the next slide, and it's that. And uh, I think that is a lovely uh, jacket, which is that, uh, the right jacket, not a boring gas. Uh, can I just say one more final thing? So for what it's worth, um, if you want uh, all this to be distilled and sort of into a single sentence of um, advice, uh, as I say, for what it's worth, um, I mentioned that I started life as the science field editor uh, at OUP uh, at the end of um, uh, the 60s. And um, the discipline I learned then was every single meeting I had, sort of interviewing scientists or whatever, I had to write a note for colleagues to read about what had happened in the meeting. And that habit stayed with me for the rest of my publishing career. Every meeting I had, I would write a note for the file. And this is a very, very useful discipline. A, when you're in the middle of a meeting and you know you're going to have to write a note, you really make sure you understand it and you try and structure it, you try and steer the structure of the meeting because you've got to write a note about it, and you make sure there are no loose ends and you understand everything and everything that's agreed. And then you write it down, that helps you remember it, and then maybe a year later you're seeing the same person again or a related meeting, you can read up what was decided or what was going through your mind a year ago. And so having that note on file is very useful. So my final advice is write a note after every meeting. The end. Thank you. <laughs>